right? If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 14, we have a lot to get through today, and yes, that's pastor speak for it's going to be a longer one. Um, as we have been just praying for and, and remembering the, those that are suffering and have, have lost, um, as we were singing that song in the valley and just as we were singing that, I was thinking about the various difficulties that um, are going on within the lives of the people in this church right now. Um, and at the same time, we had an awesome daddy-daughter dance last night, and there was lots of joy in celebrating. And so it's just a, it's a picture of what, what it's like to come together as, as a group of people from various um, experiences and feeling various things. And uh, some of us come in ready to celebrate and rejoice, and some of us come in not sure that we can and uh, with lots of questions, and that's okay. Um, as Nate said earlier, the Psalms teach us that we can come to God in all of those things. And so part of what we're going to do today is just continue to work through God's Word um, and trust that God will use that to, to speak to us. Um, so we're in 1 Corinthians 14. Because of where we're going with our text today, I want to take a few minutes and talk about what it is we're doing on Sundays when we preach. Our view of preaching is that we, we are laying before you God's Word, which is true and trustworthy, authoritative and binding, and powerful and effective. Uh, we simply read what it says, and we help you see for yourself what it says and what it means. Um, the term for this kind of preaching is expository preaching, and it merely aims to expose Hence the word expository, expose what the text says, what God has said. Now, much of the time, this is, can be a very simple and easy thing to do. And it requires just a basic understanding of words and grammar and, and what they mean. So, if the text says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, we, we say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we put that before you and we say, hear this. This is a wonderful and glorious truth, but it's not that overly complex. Everyone, each of you, everyone, call on the name of the Lord. Reach out for Him. Confess that you need Him. Confess your sin. Confess that you have tried to live your life as your own Lord, that you have tried to control and direct your own life and seek your own happiness apart from your Creator and Savior. Call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. And if you're new to church or to Christianity, that, that is, it, it is the simple messages like that that we would most have you hear and hear again and again and invite you to respond to. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And not just for eternity, but, but for now and changed now in your nature and in your heart and your affections and in your desires to live for and love your Creator and Savior. But at times in preaching, it takes a little more work. It takes a little more work to, to understand the context of what a message means and to, to back out and even understand the larger context of Scripture and the ideas and truths of the Bible as a whole. But regardless, whether simple or complex, our goal is to expose the meaning of God's Word and lay it before you with authority. 
And the authority doesn't come from me or, or a preacher, and the authority doesn't come from any scholar or commentator. The authority comes, and it's, it's found in God and His words. That's why we help you. We, our goal, at least, is to help you see that this is what God says and not just say, you know, without opening our Bibles and actually looking at it, this is what God says. We want you to be able to see that. And so for this reason, we see preaching as a weighty and significant thing. We are not here merely to offer some suggestions and nice ideas to muse about and, and, um, and all of that. We are not here to give you some life tips that you might find helpful, some nice ideas that you might ponder about. No, these are the very words of God to which we will be held accountable. So that's what we are aiming to do each week. Now, and this is where this connects with where we're going today, at the same time, there are passages of Scripture that are less clear than other passages. And there are passage about, passages about which Christians disagree, including very godly, smart, wise, and Bible-committed Christians. The important things in Scripture are clear, but being a church like us that preaches through whole books of the Bible, at times we will get to passages that are, that are less clear. And in these times, there is wisdom in not presenting one interpretation of such a passage with the full weight and authority and bindingness as the clearer passage. Or to put this another way, it's okay as a Christian to have one box over here about things that you are absolutely certain of, Doctrines and beliefs and practices that you cling to with great certainty and hold to. And then over here to have a box of things of which you still have convictions on. And you may be quite certain of them, but you hold a bit less tightly to them. You can see where others might disagree. You can see where others, even in their understanding, reading of Scripture and taking it seriously, might come to different conclusions. And maybe you yourself still have questions and you're, you may come to a different conclusion over time. So I set all of that up because today we get into 1 Corinthians 14 and specifically into the, the topic of the spiritual gifts of prophecy and tongues. Now, the main point of this passage and the main point of this message is abundantly clear and there should be no wavering on it. We see it in verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. Strive to excel in building up the church. That's what this passage is really about. And so we'll unpack that as we go. However, there are other things in this passage that are not as clear and of which Christians disagree about. As you likely know, these are some of the more debated topics in the church today. And so I just want to set the stage like this before we go to make this distinction between things that are clear and thus authoritative and binding for us, which is the bulk of what we, we do and cover on Sundays here, and, and I think in our teaching as a whole, we're just trying to look at Scripture together and draw the clear implications of it. But then on the other hand, things that are less clear. And I'll try to make that clear as we go through this. Now before we get into the text, uh, it would be helpful to explain the two main views on these gifts among Christians today. right? Because you may know um, the, the heart of of the division here is whether these gifts of prophecy and tongues 
still exist or not today. So how do we go through a passage where, you know, some of us think these still exist and some of us don't? And within this church, we have people on both sides of that, and we're okay with that. We think you can be committed to Scripture and committed to serious, deep study of Scripture and come out on both sides of this issue. So let me just briefly explain to you the two main views, because it'll, it'll be hard going through this if I don't do this up front. So one view is usually, is usually called the cessationist view. Um, this view holds that gifts such as prophecy and tongues, as well as uh, healings and miracles, these things had a specific purpose in the life of Jesus and during the, the early stages of the church. Um, so first, they functioned as signs that gave evidence to the unique nature of Jesus and signs that affirmed the truth of the gospel message among those who first proclaimed it. So they had this unique purpose in that first century time. So one place that you can, can see that this is at least part of their purpose is in Hebrews 2. It says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, distributed according to his will. Okay? Connected to this, the cessationists would say that such signs were necessary in this time because you didn't have the New Testament writings, scriptures. You didn't have this canon of the New Testament as you did the Old Testament. Um, at that time, you had the gospel message and the teachings about Jesus and of Jesus being proclaimed by those who had actually seen and heard him and been personally commissioned by J Jesus. But once there were the New Testament scriptures that were on par with the Old Testament scriptures, the Word of God in writing that is living and, effect, living and active, we are told, profitable for teaching, the very power and wisdom of God, the cessationists would say there was no longer any need for such sign gifts, so they ceased. And then a couple other things that... Um, concerns and observations that uh, a cessationist would make. First, a cessationist usually has a great concern to guard the sufficiency and the authority and the centrality of God's Word in the Bible. And the argument goes that such gifts of, uh, as prophecy and tongues, which have to do with revelation, in some sense at least, words from God, at best, challenge the sufficiency of God's word, and at worst, flatly contradict it. And the other concern is simply an observation that much of what flies under the, uh, much of what is claimed as prophecy in tongues today, or healings and miracles, is, is bogus and is nothing like what you find in Scripture. And it's done and claimed by those, often, who have little regard for Scripture, little concern for right doctrine, or who seem to merely crave spiritual experiences and highs, no matter where they come from. So that's some of what a cessationist view holds. On the other side, there is the continuationist view. You can understand from the term what a continuationist believes. Continuationist thinks that there is still some legitimate use of the gifts, such as prophecy and tongues, and healings and miracles. 
full disclosure, this is my view. While Scripture does point to signs and wonders, having a unique role in the authenticating and affirming of the ministry of Jesus and the early church leaders, it, I don't see it saying anywhere that such gifts would cease at some point. It certainly doesn't have anything to say about the close of the canyon and what that means for gifts. Um, in fact, in chapter 13, which we covered a couple weeks ago, we saw Paul say that there would be a time when these gifts would cease, but that would be when Jesus returns. Furthermore, Paul is instructing the Corinthian believers here in how to rightly use these gifts in the church, assuming that they are and will continue to be active in the church. And he clearly doesn't limit their activity to apostles or prophets or early church leaders. Now, I do think that we can observe that God chooses to work in overtly miraculous ways with signs and wonders and such in certain periods more than others. Uh, you see, as you read through the Bible, you see an abundance of this sort of thing in the lives of Moses during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament and then in the early years of the church with Jesus and the early and the apostles. Outside of that, if you take the whole timeline of Scripture and history, but if you take the whole timeline of Scripture and the whole scope of the earth, you don't have anything near the expectation found in some places today that God is going to work miracles every time we get together or even in our lifetimes. Now, God does work miracles all the time in the sense of saving people, in the sense of turning people from his enemies to, to people that worship and love him, in the sense of healing diseases, in the sense of overcoming addictions and rescuing broken marriages and all of this stuff. But as far as the overt miracles found in Scripture, these signs and wonders, we should not expect, much less demand, that God does the same things at the same frequency in our day and in our church. He may, but that's not up to us to determine. But saying that is different than saying these gifts have ceased for all time and have no purpose anymore. And so I'm comfortable saying that I am a cautious continuationist because I, and I didn't come up with that term, because I think much of the pursuit and the use of these gifts today is imbalanced and unbiblical, but I don't think that means that all uses must be. All right, that was just the introduction. <laughs> we need to get into the text, but we had to set up a few things. So let's get into God's Word. 1 Corinthians 14, we'll first read the first, the five, first five verses. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, this section sets the stage for all that Paul's going to talk about 
through verse 25, which is where we're going today. Um, so we're going to spend most of the time here unpacking this because Paul is just going to unpack this in the rest of the verses. So notice a few things. First, notice that there's two gifts that Paul is talking about here, tongues and prophecy. So let's give a short definition, explanation of these gifts. The gift of tongues refers to the miraculous ability to speak in a language unknown to you. Um, in Acts, where early on in Acts, where we first see this, this happening, this gift, these were clearly real human languages that God had given to the, the early believers for the purpose of sharing the gospel to those who spoke different languages. And everyone present heard the gospel in their own languages and gave, gave praise to God. And I think that this is still something God does. In fact, I heard um, an account recently from somebody that I have every reason to trust about a situation where someone had the miraculous ability to share the gospel in a language that they had never learned uh, in a completely fluent way. Um, this was just a one-time event. They didn't know that language after that. Um, but in this moment, God gave them ability to, to speak and communicate the gospel. I think God can and does still do such things. I don't think, though, that this is the only use of tongues. Uh, the way it's described in 1 Corinthians doesn't seem to limit it either to evangelistic purposes or, I don't think, to real human languages. We'll come to that, back to that a bit. Uh, prophecy. Uh, now, I've said this a few weeks ago, but defining prophecy is tough, but a very basic definition would be a spoken message originating from God. Uh, we often think of prophecy as telling something about the future, foretelling the future, and that's sometimes the case, but in Scripture and today, I would say as well, that is not always or even usually the case. It is often simply a, an application or a reminder of what God has already said, a, um, speaking God's Word into a specific situation or applying God's Word into a specific situation. So a couple of examples of what this could look like. Um, in Acts 5, Peter has supernatural knowledge that a couple, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, you may have heard of this story, are being dishonest in the gift that they bring. They bring this gift to, to the believers, and Peter knows that they're, they're lying about this. Um, God seems to have given him knowledge of what's going on in their hearts. I think that could fall under what prophecy is. In Acts 13, uh, the Holy Spirit said, uh, it says, said, to a group of believers, to set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, we don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit said this to a group of believers, whether audible or not, but again, in my understanding of it, this could also fall under what we call prophecy. I, I think prophecy could even be the bringing to mind of a scripture passage for a specific situation or individual, um, particularly one that you had little knowledge of or had never remembered before but you know it in an instant. Now, some of what I would call prophecy, or I'm comfortable calling, I'm putting under the rubric of prophecy, those who hold cessationist views might call, thing, call impressions, leadings, or strong convictions, and I'm okay with that. Um, I'm okay using different terms while still benefiting from such things. Secondly, to, to notice in this passage here, we have to consider why Paul is talking about these two gifts. Because a couple chapters ago, Paul gave us a bunch of spiritual gifts, 
And then in chapter 13, Paul said, well, more important than all the spiritual gifts is love. So why is he singling out these two gifts? And it's important to note, as I'll show here in a minute, that it's not because these are the two most important or most valuable gifts. As these chapters will make clear, the Corinthian believers had a eager, they were eager for manifestations of the Spirit. And they were particularly fascinated with and eager for the gift of tongues. Now, it's not too hard to understand why this might be. Um, the gift of being able to speak immediately in another language is immediately impressive. Um, it, it, it can, and, and it's obvious that it did, um, had the impression of making someone seem super spiritual. Like, oh, they must have a really direct connection with God. They must have a deeper relationship with God, and this, they must be more valuable and important in the church. That kind of seems to be what's going on in Corinth. And so the reason Paul brings up prophecy then, rather than any of the other gifts, is to compare and contrast it with this one gift that they were so fascinated with, namely tongues. Because these two gifts are similar in many respects. In fact, tongues plus, plus interpretation is essentially prophecy. But apart from interpretation, they, 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 they differ on this one important, in this one important way, that prophecy is intelligible and tongues are not. Prophecy is intelligible and thus beneficial to the church. And that's the big point in this passage, as we'll see. So Paul is not singling out here the two most important spiritual gifts. He's speaking into a very specific situation where there was some misunderstanding on spiritual gifts. It's interesting to note in all of the rest of Paul's letters, or John's letters, or Peter's letters, or James' letter, there's no other mention of the gift of prophecy, and there's only one mention, sorry, there's no other mention of the gift of tongues, there's only one mention of the gift of prophecy in 1 Timothy. Now, this could mean that all of these other churches were using these gifts in an appropriate way and they needed no correction. Um, it could also mean that there was no use of these gifts in these other churches, but at the very least, it shows that tongues and prophecy are not central to the life and mission of the church. And even more than that, that spiritual gifts as a whole take a back seat to things like the fruit of the Spirit and the ministry of the Word and prayer and God's people coming together. And so whatever we believe about spiritual gifts today and the continued use of these gifts or not, this issue of the priority that they the, the priority the, and place that they have in the life of the church is crucial. And I've said this a few times, but we should be able to say with great confidence that no spiritual gift is the barometer of the health of a church. No specific gift is necessary for a church to be healthy. And they shouldn't take the focus away from the ministry and power of God's Word, and of prayer, of the sacraments of communion, and baptism, and our regular gatherings. Now, we should also be careful about not going too far as well, and notice that Paul does say here, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, we should still take this in context. Paul doesn't say this to every church. 
This is not what Paul says to, to all the churches that he ministers to. Paul is urging the Corinthians to prioritize prophecy over tongues because prophecy is intelligible and thus builds up the church. Still, he has no problem telling believers to desire to prophesy. In another letter, Paul says, do not despise prophecies. Um, so despite the potential for these gifts to be misused and despised, and apparently Paul knew in his day that that was the case, as we do today, we shouldn't go to the other extreme and exclude them or despise them. And then a third thing to notice here, the overarching concern and point in this, in this chapter isn't really about prophecy and tongues, but about the importance and priority of that which builds up the church. In context, this had to do with prioritizing prophecy over tongues because it was intelligible, but there's a larger application here for us. How is your pursuit of God and involvement in the church working for the building up of the church? How does your pursuit of God and involvement, engagement with the church benefit others? Or in what ways is it merely seeking your own benefit? Ours is a day of very individualistic views of religion and spirituality. We like the Burger King approach. Have it your way. Pick and choose what works best for you, find that out, what fills you up, and just stick with that. But Paul pushes in a different direction. If your pursuit of God and engagement with the church isn't building up others, then it's not very spiritual, and it's not very great. Spiritual gifts aren't merely about the specific ways you commune with God or feel close to God, but about how you serve and build up His church. Again, he says in verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. And that is the clearest and most easily applicable part of this passage. How are you striving to excel in building up the church? I don't usually recommend reading the message version for your regular Bible reading, as it's not really a translation. It's more of a loose commentary. However, it pulls out a helpful idea in this verse. It says, since you're so eager to participate in what God is doing, why don't you concentrate on doing what helps everyone in the church? The fascination, the fascination with spiritual gifts, uh, both then and today, is often an attempt to be at the very center of what God is doing. And do you know what is at the very center of what God is doing? The church. The church, the life of the church, the faith and faithfulness of the church, the, the encouragement and the teaching and the maturing of the church, the witness and evangelism of the church. The church beholding and glorifying God in all things is at the very center of what God is up to. And that's what we should want to be a part of. Is that what your faith and your spirituality is all about? So with that, 
let's read the rest of the passage. Um, I'm going to pause here and there and just draw our attention to some things, but we're going to get through the rest of the text here. So starting in verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. So again, the point here is intelligibility. Revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching are all similar in that they bring something intelligible and thus helpful. Paul's then going to use several analogies to make this point. And they're all making the same point here. So verse 7, If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Now, we don't have time to unpack each of these, but the point is fairly clear and, and the same throughout. When it comes to sound, even musical sound, there has to be some intelligibility for it, in it, to, for it to be profitable. You know, we may find the mumblings of a baby cute, but we go on to teach babies how to speak so that it may be intelligible and all may benefit. Verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Now, this is interesting. There's a lot of discussion, and you, you may have wondered, how do you go about receiving a gift like tongues or prophecy? You know, it's, it's different than going about receiving and, and putting to practice a gift like serving or even teaching. It's, it's obviously there's some supernatural element to it. And here Paul tells us you can pray for it. There is a place for desiring and praying for specific gifts. Now, of course, we need to keep that intention with the, the fact that God is the one who ultimately ordains and sovereignly apportions gifts to individuals and, and within a church, as chapter 12 made clear. Ultimately, we don't get to demand either from God or from one another, how we are going to serve. Moving on, verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I, I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen? to your thanksgiving, when he does not know what you are saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, the overall point here is the same. The intelligibility of the value of intelligibility in the church gathering. But I do think that Paul speaks into a secondary question here that many have today. 
I do think Paul assumes that in addition to a public use of tongues where interpretation is necessary, there is also a private use of tongues as a kind of prayer. So I'll just point out a couple things. He connects, uh, Paul connects speaking in tongues to praying in tongues and praying in the Spirit, where one utters mysteries in the Spirit, um, a kind of prayer where the mind isn't leading the way, but the Spirit, uh, perhaps not all too different or perhaps, you know, the same as what Paul also talks about in Romans 8, where he says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, Paul is clear that such a use of tongues, private use of tongues, is limited in value, but he still says it builds someone up. It builds himself up. And surely this is not bad, even if it is not as valuable as building up the church. And then Paul makes that statement at the end there, where he would rather speak uh, five intelligible words, more than a thousand words in a tongue, in the gathering of the church, even though he speaks in tongues more than all of them. And so if Paul would and so if Paul speaks in tongues more than everyone, but he basically never does so in the church gathering, where is he doing it? Now, it could be that he's doing it in evangelism context, sharing the gospel in another language like we talked about, but that doesn't seem to fit the context of this passage. It seems that he prays in tongues in private. Last section. Verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsider or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, this can be a difficult passage to, to follow the logic of, uh, but the second half, the latter couple verses, help us understand the first part. The focus here is on evangelism. Uh, the rest of the chapter has been concerned to show the value of of prophecy over tongues to building up the church. Here, the same point is made when it comes to unbelievers, the value of intelligible words over unintelligible. And so uninterpreted, uninterpreted tongues do not help either the other believers in the church be built up, nor do they help unbelievers hear the gospel, be convicted of their sin, and be saved. And so no matter how much you may personally benefit from a spiritual experience or encounter, no matter how impressive tongues or miracles or outward signs may be, we must never elevate these things above building up the church, seeking the good of the church, of our brothers and sisters. And what you see in the last couple verses there helps us stay on course to our mission as a church. You see someone convicted by all, 
called to account, the secrets of his heart disclosed, falling on his face, he will, what does it say? What is the glorious goal that is accomplished here? He will worship God and declare that God is really among them. And that is what we're after. And while God may do this through an extraordinary gift of prophecy, as is the case in this example, His ordinary, normal way of doing this throughout the New Testament, throughout history, still today, is through the teaching and preaching and proclaiming of His Word, especially the message of His gracious salvation and favor in Jesus. And we don't need to wait for a new prophetic word to get on with the work of the church. God is at work now, through His Word, as people hear it and respond to it, and as we gather as believers and pray for God to work through His Word and His Spirit in us. As we do this, we see people turn to God from their sins, embrace His glorious salvation, and live lives of worship and obedience to Him. And as we do this, we are reminded that God is surely among us. And so we can earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, including these ones. But ultimately, God is sovereignly arranging our church and every other church to have what we need to be a healthy church. Ultimately, this is in God's hands. Now, I want to leave you with a couple, couple final things here. First, what might it look like to put this into practice? And the concern is to allow what Scripture allows in a way that doesn't undermine Scripture's unique role as sufficient, necessary, and binding. Which means that we don't think any prophecy, impression, leading, or word that God may give someone today should be seen as infallible incapable of being wrong, taken with the authority, the unique authority of Scripture. I think God may give you, may give one of us a message to share with others. If that happens, we shouldn't say, thus says the Lord. We should say something like, I think God wants me to share this with you, but test it, weigh it against Scripture. I could be wrong, but I feel like I'm supposed to share this with you. And in receiving such things, we should be like the Bereans in Acts 17, who we are told were more noble than, than other believers because they received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, testing everything against scripture. Now, what about the use of these gifts in the gatherings, various gatherings of the church, as this is the context in 1 Corinthians? Now, just to be clear, we've never had someone speak in tongues or have a prophetic word or even ask or suggest that in, in a service. And if we never do, we're okay with that. We don't think, again, that this is something we need to be healthy or to see God at work. God is working. However, because we do believe that God can and does still work in these ways, 
at least I do, and the current elders do as well. We want to be prepared for it. So here's how we would handle such a situation. Keeping in mind the role of pastor elders to guard the teaching of the church and the need for order in the church that Paul will discuss next. We recently put this in writing, so let me read what, what we've, we've put in writing. When it comes to the practice of such gifts within the church gathering, we will allow for various convictions, in part by using a variety of terms, prophecy, impression, word, etc. We'll clarify what we do and do not mean by these terms. If someone claims to have the gift of prophecy or tongues or to have a specific prophecy or message, they should first be directed towards an elder. The elder will hear the message and assess whether it would be fruitful to share with the church at large. If it is a tongue that is claimed, the elder will first, will first ask the church if anyone has an interpretation. The two individuals shall gather with the elder, speak their words, and the elder shall assess if the interpreted message would be fruitful to share with the church. With any message that is shared, a brief explanation will be given that such a message may be helpful but should not be taken as authoritative and binding on the level of Scripture. Again, we just want to be prepared if such a situation happens in order to do it in a way that we think is follows Scripture and is pleasing to God and is building up of the church. And then one last thing. It may seem like we are trying to carve out a very unique, untraveled path here. I mean, aren't the only two options to be uber-focused on these spiritual gifts or to completely ignore them? It can be what it seems. But I want to encourage you that we are not the only ones in this position. As I talk to pastor after pastor and, and, and friends about this, I am encouraged to find that many people find themselves in this, this tension of affirming that the gifts are still active, but wanting, wanting to be very careful in the place they take with the church, take in the church, and with questions about what that looks like. And so I want to leave you with a quote from John Piper, who pastored his church for 33 years, and he's retired now, and his perspective on how his church handled this issue, and I was encouraged to read through this. He says, we've gone through seasons of Bethlehem where we focused more or less on these things. And it seems like if you don't talk about them from the pulpit and teach on them, at least in our context, they tend to fade into the background. And so we go through seasons. And I would say that prominent season have been where they're just not in the forefront, that is, the extraordinary gifts like tongues. And I'm okay with that, since my sense is that Paul was not eager to forefront that gift, but was a little bit miffed that it was being foregrounded as much as it was when he wrote 1 Corinthians 12. He was having to give restraint to it rather than promote it. And he, he goes on. But uh, I would say I, I would be content if we looked back in 25, 30 years and could say the same thing. On the one hand, we're not convinced that a specific gift like this, like these, has to be actively functioning in the church for us to be healthy. That's not this place any spiritual gifts holds. You go back to 1 Corinthians 13. The evidence that God is at work among us is, is our unique, enduring love for one another. On the other hand, I'm not convinced that such a gift has ceased operation or is inherently dangerous. And we want to be open to God working in these ways, keeping everything done in an orderly way that benefits the church and doesn't lead to chaos and confusion. 
In everything we do, we strive to excel in building up the church. Because Christ gave himself for the church, and Christ calls us to love and serve and build up the church for his glory, for the proclamation of his glory in the world, for the display of his glory in the world, and for our good. Let's pray.